November 13th, 1961. A man floating on a dinghy with a wrapped in tow, waving to the tanker ship Gulf Lion in the Northwest Providence Channel in the Bahamas. As the man approaches the ship, he introduces himself as Julian Harvey. I'm the captain of the Bluebell, and the little girl on the raft is Terry Joe, and she is dead. Uh, what? Welcome to We All Go A Little Mad Sometimes, a true crime and assorted oddities podcast with your host, Punk Joe. I have a face for podcasts and a passion for true crime. We're coming to you live on tape from the southeastern United States of America. I hope you all had a good Christmas or whatever holiday you celebrate and a happy new year to everybody. So on the show today, we have the story of an American madman, Julian Harvey, and an incredible 12-year-old girl. I'm going to start a couple of series that's going to be ongoing throughout the uh, next few weeks. The first one's going to be called Tomb Raiders, and then the second one is uh, called Second Chances, um, because I believe everybody deserves a second chance, except maybe these guys. And we also have a little bit of news there towards the end of the show. So uh, we got a lot to to do, so uh, let's get to it. Harvey, a handsome war hero, charter boat captain, was taken on the ship where he told a harrowing tale. A tropical gale had blown through and broken the main mask and it came down crashing through the deck, causing a horrendous fire, which he fought single-handedly with two fire extinguishers to no avail. As the catch began to sink, everyone on board had retreated to the stern Assuming everyone had jumped overboard to safety, Harvey released the lifeboat dinghy and swam to it. He said he searched for the occupants of the boat and even went hoarse, calling for them. Later, he found the little girl floating face down in an oversized life preserver. Who was Harvey? 44-year-old Julian Harvey a bonafide war hero, decorated pilot, World War II and Korea, a very experienced sailor, and former owner of a few racing yachts. Everything about him just oozed charisma and confidence. But, as with most psychopaths, he could play the game like an experienced politician. It's just a beautiful veneer hiding what is really below the surface. A self-centered creature no one really knows. Born to a beautiful Broadway chorus girl. His father left when he was an infant. Later, his mother married a vaudeville impresario and Julian was raised like a prince. 
at 10 years old, he received a sailboat for his birthday, from which he developed a lifelong love for sailing. When his mother's marriage broke up after the 1929 crash, he went to live with a wealthy aunt and uncle. His life of privilege changed little. Julian, a scrawny youth, began working out in bodybuilding, something he continued throughout his life, even modeling at one point in his teens. A very good-looking, well-built psychopath with the unique ability to miraculously and heroically survive accidents over and over again. He and a friend out driving his first car, a Model A Ford, had a wheel come off, safely jumping from the spinning car, he managed to clear himself from the car before it flipped over. Given college a whirl for a few years, Harvey signed up for the Army Corps in 1941 and distinguished himself as a pilot. Flying over 30 missions in World War II as a bomber pilot, surviving two crash landings. By 1944, he made his way to Lieutenant Colonel and with a host of awards and medals, he was chosen to fly a death-defying flight crash landing into the James River in Virginia. I mean, this guy had a breast set for sure. Calm and cool under pressure. He was quite aware of the hero vibes he gave off, even dressing the part. The girls loved him. He had no trouble with the ladies at all. He just couldn't seem to hang on to him very long. In April of 1949, out with his third wife, Joanne and her mother, the trio was driving across the swamp when Harvey lost control of the vehicle, crashing through the bridge rail and into the swamp. Unfortunately, the women drowned in the car and Harvey miraculously survived the ordeal. He told the officials that as the accident was happening, he had jumped free of the car as it was skidding off the bridge. A recovery diver said he'd found all the car doors were locked and the driver's window was rolled down. Harvey's father-in-law didn't believe Harvey's story and asked for an investigation. They could not find any evidence of malicious intent, and the case was dropped. However, during the investigation, a doctor evaluating Harvey said under the veneer of his charm, he was an amoral man with no empathy for others, a man that could be dangerous. So, after collecting on his wife's insurance policy, he can believe that, Harvey married his fourth wife, Jiddy. Three months after his marriage, Harvey was sent to Korea, where he flew 114 combat missions, adding more accolades to the giant pile he already had. He and Jiddy were divorced shortly after his return from Korea in 1953. Enter number five, Georgiana. Harvey retired from the military and bought a series of racing yachts. The first one he crashed into a known hazard in the Chesapeake Bay, winning a sizable sum of money in a claim. And the second, somehow or another, caught fire in the Gulf of Mexico. By this time, Harvey's wife had left him and was seeking alimony for extreme mental cruelty. And it just so happened, the insurance money from the last boat was able to cover Georgiana's claim. In 1961, he began skippering charter parties out of Hollywood, Florida. He and his sixth wife, Mary Dean, lived on the boat they crewed. 
owned by Harold Pegg, called the Bluebell. Okay, so let's go north for a minute. Dr. Arthur Dupereau, a Green Bay, Wisconsin native and an accomplished sailor in his own right. A former Navy man, he loved sailing with his family around the waters of Green Bay. But he desperately wanted to return to the tropical waters he had traversed in World War II. In 1961, Dr. Dupereau had waited long enough and decided it was time to go. After making the appropriate arrangements with work and with the kids' school, the family, his wife Jean, son Brian 14, Terry Joe 11, and Renee 7, set out for Florida. Planning on buying a boat and sailing to the Bahamas, they were unable to secure a boat for purchase. The family chartered a boat in Fort Lauderdale, a catch called the Bluebell. Their captain would be none other than Julian Harvey, accompanied by his attractive ex-stewardess wife, Mary Dean, number six. They spent the week snorkeling and spearfishing and exploring, dining on fresh seafood with the locals in the Bahamas, for sure a vacation to remember, and this was just the beginning. The doctor had planned the, on the family hanging around the warm crystal waters all fall. A Sunday night, November 12th, Terry Jo had retreated to her cabin that she shared with her little sister, and everyone else stayed on the deck enjoying that last drop of the trip on the Bluebell. Terry Jo was startled awake around 11 p.m. She could hear her brother yelling, Help, Daddy, help! Okay, now, two days after his miraculous meeting with the Gulf Line and rescue, Harvey was back in Miami at an official Coast Guard investigation. Harvey once again dressed in a nice suit, being his usual charming self despite just losing his wife, a family, and a yacht. During the interrogation, calm and coolly stuck to his original story. Even though a lookout at a nearby lighthouse saw no flaming boat, an experienced seaman scoffed at his tale of a broken mast penetrating the ship's deck and rupturing a fuel line. In the end, the investigators had no choice but to accept his tale of the unfortunate events. There were no other witnesses. As they were wrapping up testimony, as if this was written into a Hollywood movie, a Coast Guard official busted into the proceedings and exclaimed, a survivor had been rescued. Harvey exclaimed, why, that's wonderful. Cool as a cucumber, Harvey got up from his seat and walked right out of the room. A Greek freighter, the Captain Theo, had found her floating on a small cork raft in the sea. One of the crew had the wherewithal to snap a picture of the young sea waif as she came to be known. The picture was published in Life magazine for the whole world to see. It's the same picture that I'm using for my episode. As she was plucked from the ocean, gently placed in a bunk, semi-delirious, dehydrated, hungry, tired, and sunburnt, and barely able to speak, the young lady was able to get out that her name was Terry Jo and the name of the vessel she was on was the Bluebell. The captain sent word to the Coast Guard 
picked up blonde girl with brown eyes suffering from exposure and shock. The Coast Guard immediately sent a helicopter to retrieve her. Back in Miami, the girl who floated on a 3x5 cork raft for four days made an absolutely incredible recovery. She was strong enough to handle an interrogation from the Coast Guard officials. Her rendition of the happenings was vastly different from Julian Harvey's. Terry Joe told officials that she had gone, gone to bed around 9 p.m. Around 11, she heard a lot of noise up on the deck and heard her brother calling out for her dad. Terrified, she hid in her bunk a while and got up the nerve to go out on the deck where she saw her mother and brother lying in a pool of blood. She saw no one around. Suddenly, out of nowhere, Julian Harvey appeared yelling at her to get back down there, shoving her down the companionway back to her bunk. She could hear water sloshing around up on the deck and could smell oily water seeping into her cabin. Again, Harvey appeared in the doorway, holding a rifle, and was staring at her for what seemed like a really long time, and then just walked away. The water kept rising in her cabin. Realizing the boat was sinking, she scrambled up to the main cabin and saw Harvey again and asked if the boat was sinking. He said yes. And he dove in the water and swam to the dinghy he had just released into the sea. Now, alone on the boat, she remembered the cork and canvas raft on top of the cockpit. Climbing up, he got it untied and on it just as the bluebell went under. She did not know why the bluebell sank and also stated that there was no fire, the mast was intact, and the water was calm. Terry Joe's account verified what most of the officials had already surmised. The bluebell horror was the doings of a crazy man, not a summer tropical squall. The reason behind all this was never truly discovered for sure. However, it was surmised that Julian Harvey was trying to kill his sixth wife for the insurance money. He had a $20,000 policy on her. There was noticeable scratches on his hands and arms. Mary Dean was known to have very long fingernails, and they surmised that Dr. Duperot tried to intervene, and Harvey killed the doctor, and then Mrs. Duperot, and Brian, and Renee. No one is really sure why he left Terry Joe alive on the sink and catch. Julian Harvey had gone from the Coast Guard hearing room directly to the Sandman Hotel. He wrote a suicide note. I'm a nervous wreck. I just can't continue. I'm going out now. I guess I don't like life or don't know what to do with it. He wished for a burial at sea. He pinned $10 to his pillowcase for the maid. He got into the bathtub with a razor and cut a deep gash in his thigh, ankles, wrist, and neck and bled to death. Pretty much taking the coward's way out. Terry Joe went on to lead a rewarding life. Married, had children, a career with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. She co-authored a book with Richard Logan, Alone, Orphaned on the Ocean. I liken this to the ultimate David and Goliath story. A dashing war hero, boat captain, self-centered psychopath, man of the world, 
is bested by a 12-year-old girl on a cork and canvas raft. In the afterword in Terry Joe's book, she wrote, I want to stress to all who read this book to never give up, always have hope, and try to look on the bright side of things. Be positive, be trusting, and go with the flow. Have compassion. Give yourself to those in need and be loving and kind. I believe that what you give comes back to you. Amen, Terry Joe. I'd like to cite my sources for this. Psycho USA from Harold Schechter is probably my favorite true crime writer. All of his books are excellent. I have a bunch of them on Audible. He does a, just a fantastic job. Uh, also, I'd like to um, acknowledge uh, Deanne Kiapa. I guess I'm saying, I'm sorry if I'm saying your name wrong, but um, I think it was a mental floss. I read this and she did a great, fantastic job writing this. And of course, Wikipedia. Wikipedia, sometimes it's right, sometimes it's wrong, but it's always there. And they even have pictures. So let's get on with our first installment of the Tomb Raiders. It's a very short one, but it's interesting nonetheless. This takes us to Corsay, Surveve, Switzerland at Christmas 1977. Charlie Chaplin dies at the age of 88. Arguably the biggest and most popular entertainer of the first half of the 20th century. He left a whopping $100 million to his wife, Iona Chaplin. And that following March 1978, a Roman Wardas and Gancho Ganev, a Polish and Bulgarian immigrant, disinterred Charlie from his grave and demanded equal to $2.6 million in today's money as ransom. Una pretty much told the guys to buzz off that her husband was in heaven and in her heart and she didn't really care where his body was. But the police intervened and convinced Iona to help with run a kind of a sting operation to catch these guys. So over the course of the next couple of months, they did just that. And they caught the two and it turns out that Charlie was buried more than 12 miles from his house in a cornfield. The body was returned, reinterred, with a little more heavy-duty concrete on top so it wouldn't happen again. And the uh, two perpetrators ended up, one ended up in jail for a short amount of time. I, I believe it was maybe 18 months, and the other one got like 18 months of probation. Not really that big a deal for what they, I feel like, for what they did anyway. But yeah, that's the first uh, of the Tomb Raider series. The other ones will be longer than that, but anyway, I felt like that was a good kickoff for it. So let's move on to another segment of the show called Second Chances. I think everybody deserves a second chance. However, some of these guys were really bad at it. And I'm not a judge, but I think some of them actually should have stayed in prison. And... Um, I'll hit these I'll hit on these every every week but they're in no particular order but the first up on the list was uh, Anthony Kirkland Anthony was a, a convicted serial killer um, he was he was born on uh, 
September 13, 1968, and he's an American serial killer. He, he uh, murdered uh, four females in the Cincinnati area between 2006 to 2009. Two of them were literally children. He was incarcerated the first go-round in 1987. He killed his girlfriend, Leola Douglas, and set her, set her body on fire. And he pleaded guilty to manslaughter and served 16 years of a 25-year sentence. He was released on parole in 2004. So let's back up a little bit. We'll look at his first incident in, in May 1987. Raped and murdered his girlfriend, Leola Douglas, after she refused to have sex with him. Then he set her body on fire to conceal the evidence of the rape. Kirkland pleaded guilty to voluntary manslaughter and was sentenced 10 to 25 years in prison. While in prison, he got his GED and an associate's degree, which is really cool. However, he had multiple infractions in prison. Between 1998 and 2003, he was placed in solitary confinement 21 times for disciplinary control. And in the last nine months uh, of his time in prison, he was sent to solitary four times for breaking the rules and fighting. So this, this guy, man, this guy is kind of unstable to begin with, but they, the parole board let him out. So Kirkland was initially de denied parole due to the severity of his crimes. However, a ruling by the Ohio Supreme Court declared that parole eligible inmates had to be judged on their conviction and not just their crime. Therefore, he was subject to uh, more lenient guidelines for his manslaughter conviction. And he was paroled in 2004, having served 16 years of his sentence. So from uh, May 4, 2006 through March 7, 2009, Kirkland murdered four females, two women, and two teenagers. Three of them by strangulation. In each case, he had burned a victim's body to conceal evidence of the rape. The prosecutors portrayed Kirkland as a ruthless hunter of prey specialized in small, young, or down-and-out females to fuel his lust for sex and his hatred towards women, seeking to get even for the women he believed ruined his life. Each of his victims' bodies were burned. Kirkland said that it was a burial ritual for purification. Prosecutor Joe Dieters called that a load of garbage because he was actually he was burning the bodies to destroy evidence of his heinousness. Sometimes pure evil exists. Most people can't put their arms around that, Dieters told jurors. And Kirkland is a monster. Kirkland's attorneys, on the other end, presented no evidence because of the mountain of evidence that was led by nine hours of Kirkland uh, confessing to police in shocking detail of each of the four murders. And um, Dieters also told the jurors that don't be fooled into believing Kirkland is anything but a cold, calculating serial killer. And he said, Kirkland's not insane, he's not stupid. These guys do exist. So the victims, the, the Leola Douglas was the first that we, we discussed her. Cassania Crawford, age 14. She was 14 years old. Mary Jo Newton, age 45. Kimmy Rollison, age 25. She was murdered in December, right before Christmas in 2006. And Esme Kenny, age 13. She was 13 years old. And, uh... And Kirkland was actually picked up right near her, where her body was. And he had in his possession her watch and her iPad. Chief Assistant Prosecutor 
uh, Mark Pipemeyer noted that all four of the bodies were found in areas people treated like garbage dumps, symbolic of how Kirkland uh, viewed his victims. In life, these women were nothing but sex objects to Kirkland, and after life, they were nothing more than garbage. So let's do a quick rundown of some of his uh, antics. Now we talked about the 1987 uh, uh, murder of his girlfriend. He was released from prison in 2003, released from parole in 2004. In 2005, accused of raping a female neighbor in Evanston, Evanston uh, at knife point. The jury acquits him in October 2005. May 11, 2006, the burned body of 14-year-old Cassania Crawford is found Blair and on Blair Avenue in Avondale. Kirkland is now a suspect in that homicide. June 16, 2006, the burned body of Mary Jo Newton, 45, is found behind a vacant building in the 700 block of Worman Avenue in Avondale. Kirkland is a suspect in that homicide. May 14, 2007, Kirkland threatens to kill his 18-month-old son during a SWAT standoff at Kirkland's house at 860 Ridgeway Avenue. He's convicted three months later of two counts of unlawful restraint and sentenced to 115 days in jail. This guy is seriously violent, and he's still out. September 17, 2007. The Reverend Walter Bledsoe seeks a restraining order against Kirkland on behalf of members of the Bledsoe family. Court records do not say why he sought the order, but a judge granted it in December 2007, ordering Kirkland to stay away from the Bledsoes. So on September 26, 2007, Kirkland solicits sex from his girlfriend's 13-year-old daughter. He is convicted in March 2008 of importuning and sentenced to one year in prison. Judge designates him a sex offender, requiring him to register his address with the sheriff's office. October 20th, 2008, he is released from prison for the importuning case and ordered to spend five years on parole. He enters a rehabilitation center in Halfway House and over the Rhine run by Volunteers of America. February 27, 2009, Kirkland fights with another Halfway House resident at 11.30 p.m. Police are called, but Kirkland is not arrested because the other man refuses to press charges. Halfway House managers throw Kirkland out for breaking the rules and by fighting, and they do not notify his parole officer for two days. Kirkland does not immediately register a new address with the sheriff's department as required by law. On March 1st, 2009, Kirkland is accused of breaking into 860 Ridgeway Avenue, hiding in the bathroom and attacking Frederick Hughes with scissors. Hughes suffers at least 10 stab wounds, but survives and Kirkland flees. A warrant is issued for his arrest on charges for aggravated burglary and felonious assault. March 2nd, 2009, Kirkland's parole officer is notified of his release from the halfway house and begins looking for him. March 4th, 2009, a second warrant is issued for Kirkland's arrest because he failed to register his address with the sheriff's office after his release from the halfway house. March 5th, 2009, Kirkland is accused of threatening Roberta Baldwin, the mother of his child, with a knife. He flees and another warrant is filed against him on uh, charges of domestic violence, aggravated menacing, and violation of a protection order. 
March 8, 2009 at 3.45 p.m., Esme Kennedy, 13, goes for a jog near her house in Winton Hills. 4.15 p.m., Esme's parents call police when her daughter is late returning home and police begin to look for her. 11.30 p.m., police find Kirkland sleeping against a tree in the woods near Esme's house. Her watch and iPad are in his pocket. March 9, 2009, police find Esme's body in the woods at 3.10 a.m., about 100 yards from where they found Kirkland sleeping. She was strangled and the lower part of her body was burned. Authorities say her attacker attempted to sexually assault her and uh, police arrest uh, Kirkland and charge him with her murder. So anyway, at his trial, there's no shocker here. He, he received the death penalty for the aggravated murder of um, Esme Kenny while committing or attempting to commit a rape and for the aggravated murder of Cassania Crawford while committing or attempting to commit robbery. The court also sentenced Kirkland to seven years life for the murders of Mary Jo Newton and Kimmy Rollison. So he went through a bunch of appeals, blah, 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 blah. On August 28th, 2018, the Hamilton County judge agreed with the jury's recommendation and, and um, reaffirmed his sentence to uh, for death sentence. And he's sitting on uh, death row in Ohio. I mean, this guy was an absolute nightmare. Probably shouldn't have been let out in the first place, but here we are. So, um, yeah, that's the first go-around of uh, Second Chances. We'll do a little bit of news here. Our first story it comes from Stanley, North Carolina, outside of Charlotte. This is kind of old news, but absolutely amazing to me. Dennis Peak, 51-year-old, had worked for Wendy's in Stanley, North Carolina, for over 20 years. Back in October, he was fired. The reason for his firing was he was unable to do his job like a normal person. Dennis, who had been there, like I said, for 20 years, has Down syndrome. And the staff, the restaurant, patrons all loved him. They loved his smile. They loved, he loved talking to the people in the store. And he kept the dining room clean and the condiments filled and all the things that he was supposed to do with his job. Well, Wendy's fired him. So his sister, his sister was absolutely shocked by this. And uh, so she put out a Facebook post that said, my brother Dennis has worked at Wendy's and Stanley for over 20 years. And I'm brokenhearted to say that they have fired him. His dream was to retire from there someday. And he was looking forward to a huge retirement party. And we may just give him that party and tell him he is retired because he doesn't understand being fired. Now, when she confronted the manager with it, of course, the manager said it came from corporate. Corporate said they had no idea what the, what, what she was talking about. And um, nobody would take ownership of this fellow's fire. And so ultimately, they decided that, uh, you know, we're going to give him a retirement party. She also wrote that my heart is overwhelmed by the support that y'all have given my brother and myself and thank you all so much of course wendy's offered him his job back to try and do a little bit of damage control i guess his sister uh his sister's kona turner she wrote that dennis will not be going back to his job and we're gonna have his big retirement party you know wendy offered to, to help pay for it 
but they I don't think they wanted Wendy's involved in it. And so the, the town of Stanley stepped up. They gave Dennis the key to the city for the day. They um, gave him a plaque, a giant cake, and one of the local police departments uh, made him an honorary police officer for the day. I mean, they really came out and stepped up. He had hundreds and hundreds of cards sent to him. It's a really, it turned out to be a really nice thing, but, you know, it really is a true crime story, but at least it had a happy ending. And his sister Conan, man, she did a fantastic job of putting this all together for him. Our next story takes us to the right in smack dab in the middle of these United States of America to Oklahoma where Oklahoma man allegedly killed his friend over the summer because he thought that uh, the victim had summoned Bigfoot to kill them while they were fishing, according to the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigations. So Larry Sanders, 53, had gone noodling. For those of you who don't know what noodling is, you kind of get in the water, and along the banks, there's holes in the banks, and that's where the catfish like to hang out. And you stick your hand in there and wiggle your fingers, and when the catfish come up to nibble on your fingers, you grab them by their lip and yank them out of the water. So they were noodling in the South Canadian River. He was with his friend, Jimmy Knighton, when they got into a confrontation. Uh, Sanders told authorities that he struck and strangled Knighton. His uh, body was found near the river the next day. As Sanders allegedly told authorities that he discovered that Knighton intended to feed him the Bigfoot, according to an affidavit obtained by the uh, Oklahoman. It said, according to the report, Larry believed Jimmy was trying to get away from him so that the Sasquatch could eat Larry. The agent reportedly wrote, Larry would not let Jimmy get away, and Larry punched Jimmy and uh, struck Jimmy with a stick, and Larry and Jimmy fought for an extended amount of time on the ground. <laughs> Sad, but he, he killed his friend because his friend was getting a sick Bigfoot on him. So unless you've been hiding under a rock, the Idaho college kids that were murdered in, near the Moscow, uh, Idaho college campus at the University of Idaho, a uh, suspect was arrested today. It was uh, Friday, December 30th. And he is Brian Christopher Kohlberg, a 28-year-old PhD student um, in the Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology at uh, Washington State University, where he was attending. And he lived approximately 10 miles from where the four University of Idaho students were murdered. So he was arrested at his parents' house. Um, an Indian Mountain Lake uh, a gated community in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, in the Poconos, near all the ski resort. And he was taken into custody there. And he has no bond. So they must have some good evidence on this guy. Uh, I'm probably not going to comment a whole lot further on this because still have a ways to go before he even gets to Idaho. So we'll see what happens with it. But yeah, the, the Moscow Police Department. I think the FBI was involved, the Pennsylvania State Police, and uh, the SWAT team actually uh, was the one that went into and arrested him at 1.30 in the morning. So kudos to the police on that one. We'll see what happens with it. It's really a, a bad situation and four beautiful kids taken away for absolutely no reason whatsoever. So I guess that's the show. Hope you all had a Merry Christmas. Hope you all have a Happy New Year. If you'd like to drop us a line, feel free to do so. 
The email address is in the show notes. You have a request for something you want to hear. Um, incidentally, I love Bigfoot stories. So if you have a Bigfoot story, I'd love to hear it. I may read it on the show. So yeah, feel free to drop us a line. And uh, you dads out there, yeah, hit pause on the game. Go read your kids for 15 minutes. It'll mean the world to them.